You're driving home from work after a long day. You turn on the radio and you hear a brief report about a small village in East Asia where four people have suddenly died of an illness that's never been seen before. You don't think much of it, besides people die every day. A few days later, you hear another report on the radio. Only now 30,000 people have died in East Asia as whole villages are being wiped out. The next day, the headlines say that the virus has now spread to the Middle East and North Africa, but it still seems far away. Soon, the president of France closes the country's borders as the virus has made its way to Europe. Doctors have learned that you can have the virus for a week or two before any symptoms begin to show. After about four days of immense pain, you die. Ultimately, the virus reaches the United States, and within days, there are cases across the country. No treatment seems to be working, and all hope seems lost. Until finally, there's a breakthrough. A vaccine has been made, but it requires the blood of a person who has not yet been infected by the virus. All U.S. citizens are asked to report to the nearest hospital for blood tests to find someone whose blood can serve as the agent in the vaccine. Your family sits in the hospital as nurses take samples from all of you. After what seems like an eternity, a nurse runs into the room screaming something. It's a name. What's he saying, someone asks. The nurse keeps yelling out the name and now a whole medical team is running in your direction. Your son begins to tug on your jacket and says, Mommy, Daddy, why are they calling me? They run up to your family and grab your son. We think your son has the right blood type, they say. We just need to run a few more tests. A few minutes later, the doctors and nurses come out crying and hugging each other. One of the doctors comes up to you and says, Thank you, your son's blood is perfect. We can use it to make the vaccine. However, I need to talk to you. We didn't realize that the donor would be a minor, and we need you to sign a consent form. As you begin to read the form, something catches your eye. The box for the number of pints of blood to be taken is empty. How many pints, you ask? The doctor's smile fades, and he says, We had no idea it would be a child. We weren't prepared for that. You ask him again, interrogating him, how many pints? The doctor looks away before saying regretfully, we're going to need it all. You can't do this. This is my only son, you shout at him. The doctor grabs you by the shoulders, looks you straight in the eyes and says, we are talking about the whole world here. Do you understand? Please sign the form. We need to hurry. In numb silence, you sign the form because you know it's the only thing to do. Then the doctor says to you, would you like to have a moment with your son before we get started? You walk into that hospital room where your son sits on a table. Mommy, Daddy, what's going on? Could you tell your son that you love him? The doctor comes back in and says, I'm sorry, we've got to get started now. Could you leave? Could you walk out while your son is crying out to you, Mom, Dad, what's going on? Where are you going? Why are you leaving me? Why have you abandoned me? 
The following week, they hold a ceremony to honor your son for his sacrifice. But some people sleep through it. Others don't even bother to come because they have better things to do. And some people come with a pretentious smile and pretend to care, while others sit around and say, this is boring. Wouldn't you want to stand up and say, excuse me, I'm not sure if you are aware of it or not, but the amazing life you have, my son died so that you could live. He died for you. Does it mean nothing to you? And perhaps that's what God wants to say to us. This story is from Matthew Kelly's book, Rediscover Catholicism, and it was published almost two decades ago. And while it sounds like the current pandemic with the coronavirus, it's almost prophetic. But I share it because it perfectly captures the character of what we're commemorating today. Today we commemorate the day on which Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, gave every last drop of his blood to save us. Because of this, we should all be asking ourselves a question. What does the sacrifice of Jesus mean to me? Usually on Good Friday, many people throughout the world are gathered in churches to commemorate that sacrifice. We're in a very adverse situation this year. Others in the story may not come and they say they have better things to do. But like the story, the crucifixion and death of Jesus is a very sorrowful event. It's something for us to grieve. And we grieve over our own sins. We also grieve that those sins crucified our God, who all he's ever done is love us beyond all telling. In many ways, as a society, we're afraid of grieving. More and more people are no longer using the word funeral and have replaced it with the phrase celebration of life. But as we hear in the book of Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. There is no Easter Sunday without Good Friday. There is no resurrection without death. There is a process for grieving and we have to go through that process. There's first the phase of denial we might ask, you know, is this really happening? This can't be happening. We lose things that we didn't expect to lose, or maybe sooner than we expected. But then we come around to this phase of accepting that grief. We come around to accepting that this has indeed happened. How do we move forward from there? And Good Friday serves as a reminder, and how fitting it is that we are celebrating Triduum during this pandemic, that we look back and we rediscover the meaning of grieving ourselves. And we're reminded that not only does God share in our sufferings and share in our grief, but he takes it upon himself. We just heard in the second reading, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has similarly been tested in every way, yet without sin. God is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he did what no one in the ancient world thought a God should do. He took on our own flesh our own weak flesh, allowed himself to experience temptation and even suffered a human death. God knows what it's like to suffer, and more importantly, God shows what embracing suffering looks like. There are many times where people tried to persuade Jesus to run from his fate, and he easily could have. Instead, he embraced the cross so that we could have hope. He embraced the cross so that, as St. Paul says, we could confidently approach the throne of grace 
to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. When we get through that grieving process and we finally come to the acceptance of the grief, we do just that. We confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and to find grace for timely help. We come here today or we come from our homes to grieve over our sins, to pray to the Lord that he will help us to carry our crosses as he did. Not even Jesus carried the cross alone. He had Simon of Cyrene. He had help. So while we ask Jesus to help us carry our crosses, we thank him for making the ultimate sacrifice for us. That's why even on Good Friday, we still receive the Eucharist, which literally means thanksgiving. And this is our prayer. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for me. Thank you, Jesus, for suffering what I should have suffered. You gave everything for me. I give everything back to you. As we heard in the entrance antiphon last night for Holy Thursday, we should glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom is our salvation, life, and resurrection, through whom we are saved and delivered. <laughs>